Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on this fifth Sunday in Lent. Amen. Amen. I suspect that most of you who are adults here today are probably pretty familiar with some documents known as job descriptions. At some point in your life, most of you have probably had some sort of a position with responsibilities that were listed out on a written document. Some of you may even have been in management positions where part of your responsibilities were to write or to edit or to enforce these job descriptions. And even if you hadn't had to, haven't had to deal with formal written job descriptions in the past, I'm confident that whoever supervised your work probably made it quite clear to you what the duties and expectations were so that you could carry them out effectively. It's pretty standard practice in most organizations to do this so that there's some sort of clarity about the position and how the work is to be carried out. You know, there always seems to be just a little kicker in there of sorts, right? You see, most organizations, if they're really on the ball, realize that it's impossible for any job description to cover every possible situation that an employee might face in the course of working. Things are just too hard to predict. The organization wants to have some flexibility to get their employees to still be productive in case of the unexpected, or if business conditions or demands change somewhat. So there's often a very subtle but important phrase that gets tucked in, usually right at the very end of most good job descriptions. That phrase usually goes something like this, and all other tasks and duties as directed by the employee supervisor. That gives the organization quite a bit of wiggle room, doesn't it? It also takes the wind out of any employee's attempts to say, that's not my job. Of course, any conscientious employee is going to want to do what is asked of them within reason just to help out. Likewise, no sensible employer is about to take, abuse, uh, take advantage or abuse a situation by asking a worker to do something that's beyond his or her capabilities either. It seems that James and John here in our gospel lesson today want to impose that little phrase from the job description upon Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's pretty open-ended, isn't it? It's sort of like a person that comes up to you and puts you on the spot with, hey, can you do me a favor? And then they don't specify what it is they want until after you've committed by saying yes. Don't you just hate that? I want to yell, come on, just ask me what you want and let me decide. Don't maneuver me into making a commitment without being forthright with me. That's manipulative. Now Jesus knows what it is that James and John want, of course, and he handles it pretty well. In fact, we could all take a lesson from him on how to turn the tables on these open-ended favor-seekers. Jesus replies, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, you go first, 
and then I'll let you know if it's feasible or not. Oh, and did I mention, James and John, these sons of thunder, apparently are also sons of a stage mother of sorts. That's right. Mrs. Zebedee is part of this scheme to maneuver Jesus into giving her boys preferential treatment. That's not recorded here in St. Mark's Gospel account, but if you look at the same text in Matthew's account, you'll see that she's not only present, but she's the instigator and the spokesperson for the group. And who can say no to a mother in front of her kids after all, right? Well, God can when that request is not in accordance with his will. We might have thought from most of our readings of the, of the Gospels that it's Peter who's the impetuous and often foolish disciple. Yet based on what we read right here in chapter 10 of St. Mark, it's pretty clear that James and John have their duh moments as well. Think about it. If you see any indications there in that text that just maybe James and John suffer from a case of bad timing? That's probably the first thing that jumped out of the text at me when I read it. Here's Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's just told his disciples for a second time quite clearly that when he arrives there, he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. He'll be falsely accused, condemned to death, mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed. Yes, he does specify his glorious resurrection, that's true. But do you think that it might not have been just the best time for these brothers to approach Jesus and ask him if he will give them a tremendous honor? Neither James and John have amazing faith in Jesus at this point, or else they've got very little sensitivity. My money's on a little bit of both. I can sort of imagine them thinking and saying to one another, you know, pretty soon Jesus isn't going to be just our rabbi anymore. He's going to be the Messiah. We ought to line up our spots before anybody else gets to him first. You know how that goes, right? Even as children, we learn pretty early on just how to catch our parents at exactly the right time. Later on in life, we do it to people at work or even sometimes people at church. We hit them up when their resistance is likely to be low or when they're in a really good mood or when they don't really have much of a choice. Maybe our first effort at this was throwing that hissy fit at the candy counter at the supermarket checkout. Later, it's something like, Hey, Mom, can Joey sleep over tonight? With Joey standing right there with hopeful eyes. <laughs> And it later moves on to, Dad, we really have to finish our lab report tonight at Andrea's house. Can I borrow the car? Now, before you protest, I never did anything like that. Think of the times just recently that you've probably pulled something very similar to that with your boss or with an employee or a coworker, friend, maybe even with your spouse or a child. We all do it. We work situations to our advantage, and we hope to use the circumstances in such a way that it'll work out in our favor. Now, that certainly can be damaging enough when we try to do it in our human relationships. But when we attempt to do it in our relationship with the Almighty, however, 
it's far more dangerous. You see, attempting to manipulate God as James and John do here is not only wrong, it's damnable. It's blasphemy. It's setting ourselves in place of deciding how God should behave in our relationship with him rather than letting ourselves be directed by him. It's forgetting those important words that James and John had heard quite earlier, words which we've certainly spoken to ourselves or spoken ourselves hundreds if not thousands of times. We've already said them today. Thy will be done. James and John, just like us, need to be put in our proper places in our relationship with the Lord. And it's not a place into which we can put ourselves. First, they are humbled with a reality check. You don't know what you're asking. Then they are challenged with a question, and to paraphrase it, it goes like this. Can you do what would be necessary to be entitled to sit at an honored place? In other words, can you, James and John, do whatever will be asked of you to earn your place in heaven? They claim that they can. But like so many people before and so many after them, they really don't understand what is required. The granting of heaven comes only to those for whom it has been prepared, and it comes to them only by the grace of God. The Lord will do the humbling and the exalting, the crushing and the lifting up, and he will do this according to his own purposes and in his own way, and according to his own timetable. Steer well clear, then, of the two errors we see James and John making in this gospel text. First, presuming to ask God to do what we would have him do, according to our own wills. That's a recipe for sin, because anything arising out of our own will and nature is corrupted by our flesh, by the world, and by the temptations that the devil lays upon us, that encouragement of us to be like God. Second, don't presume that you can drink the cup that Jesus drank and somehow achieve something yourself toward your own salvation or your own exaltation in heaven. As believers in Christ, you will certainly taste the bitter cup of persecution in this, and you will certainly build up treasure in heaven by the good works that you carry out in faith. But you are persecuted on account of being bound to Christ by his death and resurrection. This happens in your baptism. And your good works are only good when they are driven by the Holy Spirit, apart from any expectation of honor or accolade or reward. It is only because Jesus did all things asked of him by the Father and not anything asked of him by you, or by James, or by John, that salvation becomes yours. It is only because the Son humbled himself and set aside the glory and honor and power and might of heaven and of sitting at the Father's right hand that his life, his death, and his resurrection have assured that you will receive not what it is that you want, not what it is that you ask, but that which you so desperately need the forgiveness of your sins, life, salvation. All of this comes to you by the gift of faith. Something that you can't ask for, something that you can't earn, 
and something that you can't even keep and strengthen on your own. By faith that Jesus did indeed reach his destination in Jerusalem. By faith that he was in fact betrayed into the hands of evil men. That he was unjustly condemned to death, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, flogged, crucified. This is your faith, dear Christian. This is your creed, that he who suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried, is also he who rose again and ascended into heaven, so that he could sit there at the right hand of God, and so he could intercede for you, and he could take all of your inarticulate, all of your inadequate requests, and make them his own. Brothers and sisters, through faith, your will becomes aligned with God's will. Then when you pray, thy will be done, you can be confident and assured that Jesus will convey to our Father in heaven that which is in your best interest, that which is pleasing to him. He will steer us to ask for what it is we need, not just what it is that we want. You see, Jesus does tell his followers that we may ask for whatever we want or we need in his name, and that he and the Father will grant it. But he's not giving us a magic formula here or some sort of script or recipe for prayer. Rather, in saying the words, in Jesus' name, we are confessing confidence and trust that he has found favor with the Father for us and that that favor brings blessing upon us, both now and for eternity. We are confessing faith in the one who has already done everything that the Father has asked him to do, and more than anything you could ever ask or ever hope for. He came to serve so that you might be freed from slavery. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, that you would not remain in bondage. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, by your Holy Spirit, guide us to pray rightly and to implore you not to do whatever we ask of you, but whatever would be your will for us. Make us bold to confess that you are the one who was delivered up to death for our sins and rose again victorious. You have given us the baptism which unites us to that saving death and resurrection, and you have also given us the cup of salvation, which unites us with angels and archangels, all the company of heaven, and the saints triumphant, militant, and yet to come. We pray in your name, the name that you have given us by which we must be saved, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.